Apple presents events at the Apple Store. All right, please welcome this evening's guest moderator, Shipra Gupta. Hi, um, my name's Shipra, and I write for IndieWire. Um, and tonight we are very um, honored to welcome the filmmakers of Armor of Light, um, which is an incredible documentary about the issue of gun control. Um, and we're going to start the evening off um, with the trailer first to give you a little perspective. I'm an evangelical minister. Praise be thou, Lord God. King. That goes to the core of my identity. My constituency would be conservative, very conservative. Thank you, NRA! Thank you! In my community, we talk about the sanctity of life, the value of every human life. Is that a pro-life ethic? It absolutely yes. is, Rob, because the only thing that stops a bad guy with a gun is a good guy with a gun. Three of those bullets had found their target. One of them had entered his right side. When I would hear about shootings, I would pray for the people but I never thought it would ever happen to us. I never thought. It's vitally important that you help. They will listen to you. If we take guns away, people are just gonna kill people with something else. Let's pray. Father, we know there's a lot of people in this country that would like to register guns and take them away. I'm learning about the place of the NRA and its role in the church. The Bible's very plain about a man who don't protect his wife and kids is worse than an infidel. So what we need is Jesus and the gospel and a sidearm. I'm taking a big risk. If ever I were given the scarlet letter L, I could lose my career. A love for life. That's what this is all about fighting for life. I am here today to challenge my fellow clergy. So then let us cast off the works of darkness, fear, ignorance, hatred, vengeance, and put on the armor of light. Let's pray. So um, I'd like to welcome to the stage the filmmakers of Armor of Light. So this is um, the director of Armor of Light, Abigail Disney. And um, Abigail, do you want to introduce um, sure. the three subjects? <laughs> <laughs> this is Rob Shank, Reverend Rob Shank, who um, is the minister at the center of our film that we follow. And this is Lucy McBath, who has become an incredibly articulate voice. And this is John Phillips, who is an attorney that we began following him even before we met Lucy, who led us to Lucy and, and has been a great voice in the film. So we started talking a little bit about this um, backstage, um, and you just mentioned it right now, that you started 
this journey with John. Um, so could you go into that? Um, because these three stories start kind of separately and then they sort of weave together and they also weave back in time as well through history, right. um, which is really beautiful. So right, right. Yeah, we kind of came to Lucy a little bit backwards, but just because um, <clears throat> this the, 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 the originating um, concept behind the film was that, um, you know, I was raised in a very, very conservative household. And, you know, as I look now at, at the language around guns and gun use, the values that I'm hearing don't strike me as conservative values as I was taught them when I was young. Um, so I was looking really for conservatives who'd be willing to kind of take that out for a, a drive with me. What, what does it mean when I say that these are not what are recognizable to me as conservative values? So one of the people I went looking for was somebody who had been a conservative, who was a gun owner, who was willing to kind of maybe talk a little bit about like maybe how things were straying from conservative principles. We were looking for apostates and heretics. And so we found John, <laughs> who at the time was an attorney, was um, sort of helping represent a family who had lost their son in a stand your ground case. He had been a gun owner um, and a big Second Amendment supporter until he met this family. And it was through John that we met Lucy. And as we were getting to know Rob and understanding you know, Rob's sensibilities and language and thinking around the whole issue, and as we got to know Lucy better, we realized really, really Rob and Lucy needed to know each other because there was an incredibly powerful uh, consonance in the way they thought about issues. Mm -hmm. So um, you really were the one that brought them together. Yeah, we brought Rob and Lucy together, a naughty thing that you're not supposed to do in documentary filmmaking, but honestly, for me, as a, um, I'm, I'm sometimes I can't hold the activist back. <laughs> and there was something that really important that was gonna have to happen there in Rob and Lucy meeting each other, and, and, and just there's something very um, powerful in the way that their visions blended together. We just couldn't resist putting them together. Mm -hmm. One of the um, most salient points for me um, and I would hope everyone else as well, was um, something that you said, Rob. Um, it was along the lines of um, good people can come together and contribute to bad outcomes. Um, and I wanted you to get into that a little because it really speaks to um, uh, something. It, it's, it's a difficult thing to, for people to accept. So could you talk a little bit about that and how that philosophy influences um, you know, the way you talk to people about the issue? Sure. Well, first, as a pastor, I, I care for souls. And part of my responsibility is shaping and forming the way people approach their Christian faith. And I think a healthy way to do that is with a measure of self-doubt about yourself. And I've been on both sides. I, I've been on, and I talk about in the Armor of Light, I talk about uh, easy answers and simplistic answers and how they can be like, I compare it to heroin, because it can become very addictive. It's a very fast way to resolve immediate pain, but in the long term, it only complicates things further. And, you know, in, in, in this situation, when, when you are, when you're sure that everything you do will always come out right and come out good and, and simply because you may have good intentions, the outcome will always be good. It's something that doesn't prove uh, to be reality in people's lives. 
So you can get a lot of good people together, and I know a lot of good people who are members of the NRA. They are good people. They're good family people. They're engaged in their communities. Some of them are quite generous philanthropists. But when they come together around a, a certain cause, it takes on kind of a life and a momentum of its own that may, and I think in this case, ends up in a very dark and damaging place. So that's, I, I, I work with that throughout the conversation yeah. in the film. And then another thing that um, you also sort of observed, I noticed, was the, um, the fact that uh, in certain pockets of the evangelical community, um, spiritualism and, uh, you know, guns sort of go hand in hand. And um, that was just a very fleeting observation. I mean, it's unpackaged a lot throughout the film, but I wonder if you could go a little bit more into that um, for those who haven't seen the film and are interested. Well, Abby did a very good job taming my theological gobbledygook because I, I tend <laughs> to speak in an idiosyncratic kind of language that's peculiar to our community of evangelical Christians. And, and evangelical Christians are very big supporters of Second Amendment gun rights. Uh, a lot of them, a, a very significant proportion of them are members of the NRA. And, uh, you know, there, it's kind of gotten woven into a sort of spiritual commitment to the Second Amendment that somehow the Constitution and the Bible, which for evangelicals, the Bible is the standard for belief and practice. So when you start confusing the two documents, you can also confuse your religious principles from your civic principles. And I, and I want to decouple those two things. So I, I've, I've done that in some of my conversations with pastors, with, with church leaders to get them to see those two things as opposites. I don't know if it was in the clip, but in one case, I make the case in supporting the Second Amendment, we have to be careful not to violate the Second Commandment, which is a hint that our obsession with guns can actually become a form of spiritual heresy or religious idolatry, which in our community is a grave spiritual error become thou shalt not kill unless you have a subjective fear. And that's, that's a problem. That's a very significant problem. And it certainly violates another tenant, which is to treat others as we would want ourselves treated, the golden rule, which came from the lips of Christ, and uh, loving our neighbor as ourselves, which is the second of the greatest commandments. So all of these have spiritual implications, serious ones. Mm -hmm. Yeah, certainly. Um, so uh, throughout the film, for those who haven't seen it yet, um, Rob has uh, not only, you know, goes through um, his own sort of like understanding of um, his relationship to the issue of uh, gun violence and, you know, the Second Amendment. Um, and he also gets into conversations with other members of the evangelical pastoral community. So let's take a look at a clip that sort of demonstrates one of these conversations. So we, what we need is Jesus and the gospel and a sidearm, right? Right? We need Jesus for the conversion side, 
but failing conversion and obedience to the commandment, you need a weapon. What bothers me is... If you see the world is very narrow and there's a certain narrow category of good people whose lives should be preserved, and then there's all these other very bad creatures whose lives don't matter or can be easily taken. That contradicts God's view of the world because his love is equal even for the menace, even for the enemy, even for the bad actor. God's love is immense and permanent. So uh, that affects everything about how you believe, how you practice, how you interact with other human beings, how you treat them, and, and that's the point. I mean, keep looking at the life and teaching of Christ. He keeps going back to how you treat others. So this is a long and complicated road. So um, for a little context, that um, was a meeting with your um, executive board for um, the uh, pastor um, organization that you sort of oversee, right? Um, so how did you get access to that? <laughs> well, I mean, I, we got access because Rob was kind enough to take the risk, really, of, um, of, of convincing people that we could be trusted. Um, which was a task, you know, I can be Googled. Uh, and I, I didn't try to misrepresent myself to anyone. Um, I was always pretty straightforward about my politics being radically different from theirs. But um, generally speaking, when we would walk in there and I would say, look, I, you know, I, I really want to understand this. I'm, I'm, I'm here to understand this. I don't disrespect you. I don't think people disagree with me because they're bad people or because they're stupid people. I know that you have genuine, well-developed opinions and I need to understand them. And, and when I approach people that way, they tended to, to be very unguarded and willing to go ahead and have the conversation. And, and it wound up being an incredibly fascinating series of conversations that we heard. And that was certainly because Abby is very sincere. That is truly, that's authentically her. So that trust is established almost immediately, and others sensed it too, and that's why they let you in that room when they wouldn't have let any other film crew in there. <laughs> and you can also sense that even after you know the film has gone through the editing process, and you know that's how I watched it. Um, and it's really, um, it's really amazing how sort of it just is very neutral and just sort of presents the information. And do you think that that's as a result of the editing process as well because I mean it's very easy you know editing is about constructing an argument in a lot of cases so I'm curious how you kind of balance those interests. Well you can construct an argument you can tell a story you can paint a picture you can do a lot of things when you edit and <clears throat> Kathy Hughes who's my co-director is here and our director Andy Fredericks and I I think maybe I think we all of us at one time or another had gotten a moment of like, you know, and I wanted to argue with somebody or I wanted to undercut somebody or, you know, because you have your opinions. Um, but, but we really went into it with a very strong commitment to respect the ethos and the humanity and the dignity of every person in it 
and um, a willingness not to undercut anybody and just to let people speak for themselves and let what they say stand on its own merits or not. Um, and so it took a lot of restraint on all our parts. And I think the three of us kind of had a, a, a constant dance of keeping each other honest. Um, and so that was a, like a constant give and take in the edit room. There were, there were definitely hard moments. I mean, it really took a lot of control on our part not, not to assert our own point of view. Yeah, and um, Lucy, um, I know that towards the beginning of the film when we first meet you, um, there was a struggle for you in terms of, you know, do you make this your life, you know, activism or, you know, do you not? Um, at what point, you know, did you decide to do it? And then also how did the film sort of, was that like, was that after you had met Abby or before? Or, um, could you like share a little insight to that? Um, for me, it was just a slow evolving um, but I think I knew very early on, I was really getting a good sense from God that Jordan's murder happened for a reason because it happened so quickly right after Trayvon. And then we had Sandy Hook. And then we've had all these, you know, considerable massacres. And I just begin to see Jordan's death as a a part of the larger picture and that I was beginning to feel very unsettled at work and I was beginning to recognize that God was giving me more opportunity to stand and speak out about the gun violence and using Jordan and our story as a means to catapult you know two people we're victims this is happening progressively more and more often and so I think that um, as I became a little bit more uneasy just speaking out about it, it really began to feel to me that, okay, you, you just can't speak out about this anymore. You've got to move. You've got, there has to be some action behind it um, because there's so many people that I've been meeting, particularly parents, survivors all the time, that they're all crying out, you know, this is happening. What can you do about it? How can you help us? Because I'd been given a, a voice, a national platform, and it was just becoming increasingly um, evident to me that God was showing me. And he had specifically said to me, you know, my people must see my face. You must show them who I am. They must turn their faces back to me and of course I could never understand or realize what I would be expected to do or how I would be involved in this movement to do that but I just began to understand that I had to be obedient and that this would be Jordan's legacy but not just his legacy but all the other children and family members across the country who've died even before Jordan and have died senselessly over you know, gun violence in this, in this country, that I would have to move. I would have to act and not just talk about it. Mm -hmm. And could you talk a little bit about um, uh, your, your father, I believe, who was um, the president of the NAACP chapter in Illinois, in Illinois. correct? Yes. Yeah, uh -huh. um, and how that had sort of had an influence 
like on your thought process as you were going through all of this? Right. Um, you know, as children, I remember distinct, <laughs> very distinctly, you know, we would always be in the back seat of my father's car. And as daddy was speaking at rallies or marching with Martin Luther King or Roy Wilkins, we were put in the back seat of the car. We had our pillows and our blankets and potato chips and coloring books. And we would go right along. You know, we didn't understand what daddy was doing at that time. We didn't understand how profoundly that would impact us. But, um, and I, I remember, you know, the nights where all the cocktail parties, where all the civil rights activists were at my house. And I remember peeking through the door, going, ooh, all these people that are here, why are they here? But I think, you know, all those images, everything that I experienced as a child has resonated so deeply in me becoming the activist because my father was a civil rights activist. And my father really believed in preserving people's human and civil rights. And um, I think that is just instinctively who I've become. It's so funny because when I look in the mirror, I look at my father and I say, now I really understand your need to give your life for other people. Mm -hmm. Can you talk a little bit about um, what sort of work you're doing right now at this moment? You know, what sort of initiatives or campaigns you're kind of, that you have in the works? Um, I've kind of evolved into this accidental activist, so to speak, but I've now taken um, a role as national spokesperson with Moms Demand Action for Gun Sense in America, and I'm also the faith and community outreach organizer for Every Town for Gun Safety. And we are the largest nonpartisan grassroots gun violence prevention uh, organization in the country. And we are NRA members, we are gun owners, we are law enforcement, we are doctors, we are mothers. We come from every bit of the population, individuals who've come together recognizing that we have to stem the tide of gun violence, that no one is immune to it anymore. And what we do is we educate you and we give you the tools to begin um, the process of helping to create the change. We talk to legislators, we talk to civic groups, we talk to educators, um, and what we want to do is just bring to light what's happening in the country and, and, and just urge people to begin the movement of gun violence prevention in this country. So um, let's take a look at a second clip, actually, um, that where Lucy kind of provides a little bit of analysis um, on the NRA and um, sort of the philosophy that they have. We know in the world that surrounds us, there are terrorists, home invaders, drug cartels, carjackers, knockout gamers, rapers, haters, campus killers, airport killers, shopping mall killers, and the gun is almost an invitation to give into the temptation of fear. And fear should not be a controlling element in the life of a Christian. So I ask you this afternoon, do you trust this government really to protect you and your family? We're on our own. That's a certainty. No less certainty. I want people to understand that the NRA of today is not the NRA of 20, 30 years ago. I want the general public to know that it's a symbiotic relationship.
between gun manufacturers and the NRA because the gun manufacturers make far more money if the NRA does exactly what they're doing. They're the ones that are holding up progress. They're the ones that are keeping our citizens from being safe on the streets. And I feel like I have to help expose that. Otherwise, more people will die, like my son. So um, this is a question to all of you. And this idea of um, this very real idea of being sort of taken over by fear and allowing fear to lead you to violence. Um, I'm curious what your thoughts are on each individual person sort of being able to do their part in overcoming that, you know, whether they own a gun or they don't own a gun. Um, I'm just curious what you think. I mean, I, I think that <clears throat> this, is a, this is a far bigger issue than guns. This is a, a very, perhaps not a uniquely American problem, um, but Americans have in the last 15 years brought um, a stunning amount of energy to the idea of safety, um, that there is such a thing as safety. Um, and we have uh, brought an enormous amount of, of energy and money um, to bear on the idea that we can make ourselves invulnerable um, in our little corner to almost any threat. Um, and so, I mean, it's my personal belief, and I think, you know, probably Rumi and Buddha and a lot of other people would support me in this, that the harder you try to grasp at something, the more it slips away from you. So since September 11th, more American adults have been killed by toddlers than by terrorists, for instance, um, because of the proliferation of small arms and the failure of people to keep them responsibly in their homes. So we, we, we have a, we have, a double-edged problem. One is that there's a terrible spiritual poverty in, per, in a perpetual defensive crouch that needs to be addressed. It is a deep spiritual and psychic problem um, that's at the heart not only of each individual American but then at all of us as a society we need to address. Um, and, and second of all, as we do everything that seems to be right at our fingertips to do to make ourselves safer, each and every one of those things tends to bring us closer into contact with the very dangers we're trying to push away. So we have a, a, an enormous obligation to have a dialogue as a country about how much safety is enough and, and how much do you undermine what it is you're trying to get by grasping at safety and safety alone. I, I would add from my perspective in the film, when Abby invited me to be a part of this marvelous project, the reason I said yes, I would become a part of the Armor of Light, cooperate with her project, was because it's an invitation for people to join a conversation and a, a, a spiritual exercise of their own and, and that's why I like the approach that Abby took in the film, is that all sides are respected equally. No, no one is dismissed with contempt. Everyone is invited to be a part of a process. And for me as a pastor, I, I see that as a spiritual process, as a spiritual exercise. And it's, and it's deeply internal. So for me, it, it, it's not a legislative 
process, it might be for others, but not for me. For me, it's, it's spiritual formation. It's what's happening deep inside the soul and conscience of the individual. And, and they can come to their own conclusions and then bring that to the other aspects of, of the discussion. Mm -hmm. Lucy, um, do you have anything to add in terms of what you think? I mean, you're very open about um, your spiritual journey and, and sort of, you know, overcoming fear and stuff like that. So um, how, you know, someone like myself or anyone else, like no matter what, you know, creed or we prescribe to, um, how we might sort of live that out in our day-to-day -day lives. I think you have to decide for yourself how deeply do you believe in your faith? How deeply are you committed to walking out your faith? Because so many times as Christians we say, oh, we know God, we believe in God, but there's a lot more to really living a life intimately with God every day. And I think once you have come to that understanding and that you know God that way for yourself, then it makes it a little bit easier to be able to walk out your faith because it becomes just who you are. And, you know, I meet people all the time that say, oh, yeah, I love God. I know God. But it's a whole different realm of existing with God daily when you're really trying to love, accept, and forgive others. It's a whole different realm. And when you learn to love God that way, it propels you to do things you never thought you would do before, to stand up for issues and ideas and people um, because it becomes really who you are, loving and accepting and forgiving and really caring, as Reverend Shank says, about your fellow man. And becomes real. There's certainly, to go to Reverend Shank's point, which, which is my area, the legislative and the judicial side too. I mean, I, I invite anybody in the audience to raise your hand if you think you're closed-minded. Nobody's ever going to say that they're Okay, that, okay, and that's, it's rare. It's rare that somebody, bless your heart, that would admit that they're truly closed-minded. And it's within that closed-mindedness that fear exists. And it's within Lucy and Ron and, and you know, really Jordan opening my mind. I mean, literally lifting my skull over and saying, here, walk with us for three years. Like, see what we see. See prejudice in restaurants. And and understanding, you know, I, I give these talks and was invited to talk to the NAACP through this and it's been amazing. But there's, there's one way that I explain to people that kind of have my upbringing of the difference between what we're dealing with with white America and black America and it's in the talk. And when I say the talk to the white parent, they know what I mean. They mean the birds and the bees. That's the fundamental talk that, that gives us the butterflies in our stomach. But when the sister gives the talk to her son, and we now see it and we know about it a little more, but it's about survival. It's about how that young boy, Jordan Davis, Trayvon Martin, isn't going to get the benefit of the doubt. They're born without that benefit of the doubt. And we went through two trials because of that. And that's, that's where fear lives, and that's where 
fear and God, while they, you know, they can coexist, they can't coexist in a nation with 350 million guns. So you guys eventually prevailed with the conviction um, after two appeals, three appeals? Two trials. Two trials. Two trials. Um, so what are the next steps in terms of like legislation and that sort of, because I know you are still very much, um, John, like a part of this whole thing and the work that you're doing as well. Um, so could you walk us through that? Certainly. Somebody came up to me last night and asked if we could just have stand your ground repealed. And I said, boy, that would make this all easier. Uh, and it's not that. It's, you know, with, with what we're doing, with what my firm's doing, is we're trying to give it a death by a thousand cuts. Appellate law, trial court law, you know, really attacking it by, by just taking exceptions out of it and letting people know that a, a subjective license to kill isn't a proper license to kill. Um, by by man standard or by you know religious standards, any of them, and so that's you know, that's kind of where we've taken on cases that you know frankly require hundreds of hours for work without any payday at the end, and they're just you know it's it, it's you got to do it for the passion of wanting a better life for your children and your children's children and and Lucy from her advocacy stake. Um, you know, she can touch, and, and certainly Reverend Shank, that's, that's where, you know, the low stakes poker that I get to play is amazing that Abby brings some poker players, not to put you in a gambling analogy, <laughs> yeah, but some we poker don't do players poker, but... that, that, you know, really can get a conversation started, you know, more than in a trial court in Duval County, Florida. And um, Rob, could you speak a little bit more about the conversations? Because you've been really active in speaking within um, your community of like religious leaders, um, as well as like politicians and such, um, and pro-life activists. Um, like, what sort of conversations have happened after the ones that we've seen in the film? Film. Yeah. Well, one of the parts of that is that I often assure. Uh, confidence, you know, some people are, aren't willing yet to talk publicly. But I've had plenty of pastors whisper to me, I'm very much with you in this. I can't say it publicly right now. I, some of them fear it will divide their congregations. Others fear that it will end their careers uh, as pastors, as uh, church leaders. Uh, others aren't quite sure, they don't have the tools yet to engage their own congregants, the people under their charges, but we hope to give them those tools, partly through the Armor of Light. We want it screened in churches all across America. And we're hoping pastors and church leaders, both at the local church level and in national associations, will screen the film because so far, the response has been very positive on both sides of, uh, of the issue. And, and I, think, I think we approach it right. I have great confidence that we do. And we give people the, the safe space. Abby started that in her first conversation with me. She gave me safe space to talk about who I really am and how I really feel. And she did that with a great deal of respect. And I thank you for that. Abby, because that set the tone for the whole film, and now we hope to take that same tone of, of, of respect and listening and safe space for 
people to start exploring this on their own, and I think once they do, they will, they will encounter some beautiful surprises, even in their own hearts and souls. So we are going to move to question and answers with the audience. Um, there are two people who will come around with microphones. Hi, thank you so much for this project. It's, I, I haven't seen it yet, but it's wonderful. And this question is to really anyone on the panel. I, I appreciate that it's not just a legislative battle, that there's other levels that you're fighting. And I recently have spent the last six months teaching high school English on Rikers Island. And it's given me a chance, all, all with adolescent males. And I've been shocked at how much their connection with guns is so, it's so strong. And, and they want to get out and get more guns and guns and guns. And they've shot. And it doesn't seem to seem like they're really shooting someone. And I, I don't know where that epidemic has come from. And there's this detachment from real life, and I don't know where, if there's anything in your film or any movement that might help that. I know some of my students have talked about, well, it's the music that we listen to, there's some, but it's on the streets and they grow up with that as being normal. You know, there are a lot of people pointing <clears throat> at a lot of different things to explain this, and, um, and, and there is no single answer to your question um, and therefore no single way to address the problem. Um, but the, one of the reasons I had to make this film was because I, I keep looking at my country and, and I, I, for instance, when we're presented with the idea of going into a war, the media pivots toward this language, which sort of relishes the idea of what we're going to do and who we're going to destroy. And, and there's just this kind of unmistakable lust and pleasure in it, and um, it's a, it's a, there's a, there's a deep problematic there, um, and and I, I, you know, I'm a, just a tiny little person, um, and I, I'm going to do everything in my power, honestly, to just assert that peace is better than violence, that love is better than hate, and no matter how attractive the hate and the violence and the blood may be made to look in lots of different kinds of places, but most especially our media, um, that we all, those of us who think differently, need to assert something better and ask people to, to rise to their higher selves. And I, I don't care how degraded a person may seem, there's something in there that can be reawakened. I really do believe that. And, and may I? commend you for your yes. great work teaching at Rikers Island. That's wonderful. And a point you'll hear me make in the film is when, when there is a void in the conversation, when, when, there are, when the people who ought to be speaking are not speaking, other voices will fill that void. And in this case, they are harmful and damaging and destructive voices. So let's fill that empty space with, with goodness and good words and good ideas and respect for humanity and give people that kind of hero image to look to and crowd out the other voices and the other images. Thank you for doing that. It's fascinating to see you all come back to the same uh, word or idea, language. 
Uh, it's the choice of words. For example, you uh, describe uh, gun, gun violence pr prevention as opposed to gun control or gun regulation. Or um, you have the guy from the uh, NRA saying that, do you really believe they can protect us? Well, we see, well, we see a guy who's not even a, a real policeman, a volunteer, 73 years old, accidentally shoot someone with a gun instead of a taser and, and it's all about who you know uh, how the language is posed so um biggest and you talk about the conversation changing the conversation it's how to change the language and uh does this i not having seen the film yet but i assume that the large part of the film is shifting the language of the conversation from one way we view it to another way we view it and getting people to say the other phrase i mean you talk about right to life or being pro-life, well, you know, the argument, is, and often the pro-life factions call it anti, uh, they, they call it, uh, you know, an, uh, the anti-abortion, they call them, you know, uh, anti-life as opposed to being anti-abortion. So I want to hear about what efforts are being made to change the language. Well, definitely I can say um, in my work, we have found very easily in uh, talking with individuals all, all across the country, organizations, that the one, the verbiage that puts everyone up in arms and gets them to fear is control. And you will hear NRA members again and again and again say they want to control us, they want to take our guns away, they want to control our households. So. And I think, there, I think there's a reason why the NRA does that, because it continues to fuel that fear um, and, and kind of devalues what people really need to be thinking about. So verbiage, the terms that you use, the wording that you use is very, very, very important because what you have to do is disarm people. Specifically when you're dealing with gun violence, and you're talking to individuals about, you know, the need to change the laws, to amend the laws, to protect people. We have found that you have to be very, very specific in getting them to be disarmed so they themselves are not thinking and believing that you're out to get them. And, and I think that's what we're all having to do across the board. We're really trying to disarm people to open up enough to have conversation about what's happening with the gun culture, what's happening with the laws, and how really each of us is really individually responsible at whatever way to be concerned about the welfare of others. So it's having to balance and walk a fine line because what you're really trying to make sure is that People's Second Amendment rights are not infringed upon. That's important. But at the same time, making sure that people are accountable for the ways in which they use their guns. And so it's, once again, a symbiotic relationship that both sides, gun owners, people who want guns, and people who want to keep you safe in using the guns, we all have to come to that same common ground and use kind of the same verbiage. And many times these words have been focus grouped, okay? The NRA knows what they were doing. Alec knew what they were doing when we did Stand Your Ground. Barack Obama voted for Stand Your Ground. And it's, 
it was couched in fear. And it was couched in that example of maybe there's a point zero 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 one, although they didn't tell you that, chance that your grandmother gets assaulted, or the college co-ed example, or the looting example, which is what, what got it in Florida. You know, looters come, you gotta be able to defend yourself. Well, that's not stand your ground, that's castle doctrine. That's been there forever. And, and so the, you know, the language of us versus them is what you're talking about. And that's the problem is we've got to find a mutual language to disarm figuratively and potentially literally more so um, to be able to speak the same language. Because when we're, when we're dealing with the political word choice, we're not going to make any, any, any movement whatsoever. Of course, as a minister, I've been given a few assets in that because the language of the Sermon on the Mount is so magnificent and so powerful. Blessed are the peacemakers. Let's start there. Love not only your neighbor, but love your enemy. Jesus said to the disciples when they were in fear uh, for their life, fear not, it is I. So I have a little bit of an advantage and so Maybe I get to shortcut it a little bit, but I'm just <laughs> preaching more Bible these days and helping evangelicals to come back to what they really, truly believe. We, we don't follow bumper sticker slogans. We, we follow profound and ancient words that have powerfully shaped people and communities for millennia. And that's where we need to get back to and away from popular slogans. Yeah, and that's exactly. There's a very big difference between the kind of language that Stand Your Ground is, and, and that's like the political stick of dynamite. It's calculated to um, invigorate the conflict. And, and we're stuck in a broken political dynamic. We have a badly broken political dynamic. And everybody's impulse when they get angry is just to push harder against the other side, which only makes the other side push harder. Nothing will get us out of this dynamic except something wildly different. So we need to get back to actual language, not political language, political language, this, this you know, kind of lobbing of hand grenades um, that takes place as, as, a, as a substitute for actual conversation, which is why we keep coming back to this language about the film being an invitation to a conversation or a dialogue or a discourse of some kind of honest, conversation about what our values are because as long as those sticks of dynamites are there between us we don't we're we don't have any idea what we share it took rob and me five minutes to figure out that we had so much more in common in terms of our values than not coming from the opposite end of the political spectrum i think there are a lot of people invested in us not finding that out about each other it would be maybe the single most radical thing on earth for right and left to sit down together and discover we're not all that far apart. Amazing. Well, let's thank Abby, Rob, Lucy, and John for coming out today. And thank you as well. And you can check out Armor of Light um, during the Tribeca Film Festival. It's, uh, it's play. playing again Tuesday night and Saturday night. Please, please come. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you.